Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to The Postscript. Welcome to another episode of The Postscript. I'm here with Pastor Alan Shelby of Harvest Baptist Church, and, uh, and he is the godfather of Living Faith Fellowship, as, as some people uh, refer to him. And we're having a conversation just about what God's done in his life, and, and that's what we've been talking about in the last episode was uh, discipleship. It's been a really intriguing conversation so far. But today we're going to talk about uh, how society's failure to recognize truth um, has come up against the church and, and, and how it's impacted the church. And so we'll just start with a simple question, uh, Pastor Alan Shelby. Uh, when I say crisis of truth, how do you define that and, and what do you think that that means? Well, how I would uh, define it uh, today, I think, is that, you know, the Bible has a, it has a, a key statement I feel like in uh, Proverbs uh, chapter uh, 22 verses, uh, you know, 20 and 21 about where God asks Solomon and, and says, have I not given thee the words of truth so that you can answer, you have an answer to give those that ask you. Mm-hmm. So somewhere there should be the certainty of the words of truth. Um, you know, I was raised at the, I, I think, uh, the t- tail end, I guess I'd say baby boomers, but also kind of partway through the uh, revolutions, right? The sexual revolution, mm. the uh, civil rights movement, uh, you know, in the 60s, everything was changing. And it, it, it felt to people like there were no certainties. Everything was relative, and uh, ethics was situational. So there was no absolutes and there was no right and wrong. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I can remember reading uh, Francis Schaeffer, who wrote a book, How Should We Then Live? And other books, you know, The God right. Who Is There and other things. And he was fond of pointing out how, um, in terms of the world, things start with philosophy. And from philosophy, it moves to the arts. And then after the arts, it begins to show up in general society. Um, Religion, I think, is usually a couple of three decades behind philosophy. But what started out in philosophy with relativistic thinking, because they have no... They have no standards and they have no uh, certainty to hold on to, mm-hmm. eventually proceeded into religion. And through the, you know, so the philosophy, Hegel's dialectic is seen in Karl Barth's theology, which is basically today's NT right. Mm-hmm. So it's not uh, discovering an absolute standard and then standing on it, it is uh, a collision of thesis and antithesis to reach. Oh, we have the higher truth. Yeah, yeah. And so back up real quick there. So when you're referring to these different scholars, you're really addressing their hermeneutic, their hermeneutic approach to the Word of God. Explain why those scholars' perspectives are problematic and how their philosophies impact their hermeneutic, hermeneutic yeah. a so bit the more. hermeneutic meaning how they interpret the Bible, or right. we might say how to study your Bible. How do mm-hmm. you get something actually out of the Bible? Right. 
And, um, you know, Billy Graham for a minute was actually president of a Bible college, Northwestern Bible College in Minneapolis. Mm. And this would have been 1947, 48, uh, around that time. One of the professors there, J. Edwin Hartill, wrote a book called Biblical Hermeneutics. I mean, last time I looked, Zondervan Academics still had it in publication, okay. which is they probably don't even know that. Uh, so biblical hermeneutics to him and, and to them and to schol biblical scholarship at the tail end of the Philadelphian age, a biblical hermeneutic was encapsulated in rules, what we would call rules of Bible study, mm -hmm. but rules of biblical interpretation, the law of first mention, the law of first mention, the, the dispensational principle. Uh, so uh, there were maybe 20 or 25 that he went through. Okay. And, and that is a, that's a very solid foundation. I mean, that's a solid way to go. No one teaches hermeneutics like that today, including the evangelicaldoms. Mm -hmm. They do not teach hermeneutics that way. And, and and ultimately, is that that's we would refer to that as comparing scripture with scripture. Yes. So letting the Bible define itself, right. let the the Word of God yes. function as a ruler against itself. Yeah. Study the Bible the way the Bible says to study itself. Right. You learn yeah. the way the Bible says you learn by comparison, contrast, and repetition. And uh, you know the the Bible is clear about how to study itself. Truth, God took truth, divided it up in word packages in various parts mm -hmm. so that the person who's not sincere cannot find it. Mm. So that means here a little, there a little, you know, precept upon precept. So it builds like that. That's, why, that's what discipleship is. Mm -hmm. So we, we build people up. Um, so that, that is a hermeneutic that for m most churches and schools and m most people in evangelicaldom or Baptisthood that's long forgotten. They've abandoned that. Uh, yes. And for I what? don't for think what? they would have viewed it initially as abandoning. They would have viewed it as moving to a preferred position based on more recent scholarship. So they weren't abandoning. They would be offended to say they abandoned it, although they did. Mm. But... Um, you know, you can, uh, why, why, uh, why do people not believe in biblical authority? Well, for the same reason that some Christians do not believe in creation. So we can look at the same evidence and come to different conclusions depending on our assumptions. And if your assumptions are incorrect, you'll come at a different conclusion. Unless you're going to have a theological assumption that believes in the providence of God to get you the scriptures, then you're not going to have a biblical hermeneutic. You're going to have a way of studying the Bible and interpreting the Bible. Um, you know, evangelicals had a, had a uh, half move to the, to the abandonment that they are in today, I will say, uh, with a method that was simply, you know, observation, interpretation, application. And that's as far as they could go. And the, you know, the problem with that, I will say, is it kind of turns the hermeneutic around and puts yourself at the center as opposed to 
what are the things God wants to reveal to me and how is it that I have to study so he will reveal them? Right. Um, and uh, of course, the modern thing today is not even that. It is what they call in the titles of their books a hermeneutical spiral. Okay. Which is which is a fair description. It make it makes me sick. I mean, when I when I go down that rabbit hole, right? Uh, I get queasy. Yeah, I don't do well at Worlds of Fun anymore. Any uh, of these theme parks, they, I get queasy easy. Yeah, so. Yeah. I never was any good at that. <laughs> and I used to have Worlds of Fun, you know, back back in my day when I went there, they had a thing I called the spin and puke. Is it that it barrel a, thing? The finish fling? Yes, yes. that thing. And oh you're just up gosh. against the wall and the centrifugal force and, no, and so can't this do is, that. This is Homie, the theologi- don't do that. No, me neither. And th- this is the theological equivalent to that. Well, yes, <laughs> in the sense that you are uh, so... You know, you have to, uh, boy, there's just so much with socio-rhetorical view of what is written. I mean, it starts with textual criticism and proceeds through all the various steps of exegesis, poisoning them. But you have to go back to the originals. So the original manuscripts, the original author, the original intent, what the original hearers heard, and, uh, you know, someone taught a hermeneutics class at a, uh, another church in the area, you know, uh, within the last year and had someone in, uh, you know, who would say the Bible never means what the Bible never meant. Well, but what about what Peter said? The things that Isaiah thought it meant were not all that it meant. So I think the Bible does mean. Hmm. So I, so original author, original intent, okay, that gives you perhaps the historical application. I think I see what you're saying. And that's only one-third yeah. of the three applications you should get from the Bible. So you're saying, okay, just to back up for a second, what you're saying is, so for instance, we use Isaiah, obviously, as an, as an example. Isaiah wrote... And he wrote from a perspective, and he would have seen it from a particular historical context, and he would have heard the voice of God as it impacted the nation of Israel in his context, in his time. But little did he know the impact that it would have prophetically on us today and or future generations to come. And so there is an aspect for which the Bible unfolds itself uh, in light of itself for generations as they, as they proceed Versus what we're, we're up against now in scholarship is there is no answer outside of the historical context that belonged to whatever century that particular book was written in. Is, it, is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, so Peter tells us that the prophets did not understand everything they wrote. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're looking into how—I mean, how does this line out? If I'm Isaiah, how, do, how does it make sense— that the Messiah is a conquering, victorious Messiah and a suffering Messiah. Mm-hmm. How do you have that? I, I don't, you know, uh, I think Peter says, you know, the, uh, even the prophets themselves did not understand all of that. And these are things that angels wish to look into. Mm-hmm. We now stand at the end of the age where we have the entire body of Scripture, leather-bound, gilt-edged, and can take it as the mind of God for man today, so we can cross-reference it. 
We can use, the Holy Spirit can use Scripture to interpret Scripture for us. So prior to that, while it was still being written, there, there was some relativity because it wasn't finished yet. Hmm. And God's sovereignty encompasses the free will of man. So, so okay. So that's why some of the ambiguity. So Isaiah prophesied and said things that, yes, had original hearers with an original intent and things that originally happened in that day. But, oh, that's not everything because God ain't done yet. Mm-hmm. Now we have a completed Bible. We can put that together with what actually happened and say, oh, that's what that is. Mm-hmm. And those are the things you have to do to correctly interpret Scripture. Mm -hmm. I have a hermeneutic that brings you certainty. And yet, even though we have the scriptures most conveniently accessed, we are less certain today than at any time in history. And I think so what we've talked about so far is this idea that like a proper hermeneutic and and a proper theological approach actually creates dimensionality to scripture. But the age in which we live in actually is seeking to make it scripture two-dimensional um, and, is, and is robbing us of the depth of, of prophetic insight, uh, of inspirational insight. And ultimately, it leaves, leaves the Bible more ambiguous in its flatness and harder for us to actually apply doctrinally. And so what, I guess, could you summarize for us how you've seen this change in hermeneutic impact the church from doctrine to evangelism to to discipleship all of those things yeah so when you know the church i grew up in the controversy of the day was you know king james versus other versions that were out there um the bible college that i went to the controversy of the time was the majority text which was new at that time in the early 80s versus the eclectic Greek text, which had been handed down to us from Westcott and Horde and a number of scholars then down in between. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those were controversies. There, uh, we are a minority now. Um, most, uh, it's, it's like with, I mean, it's just exactly the same thing that has happened with evolution versus creation. uh, When I was in high school, the creationists and the evolutionists were debating. And um, Gish and Morris would debate scientists at different universities. You know, and and I remember Gish talking about evolution as the fish to Gish theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scientists stopped doing that because they always lost the debates. They always lost the debates, so they stopped doing that. And instead, today, there is a bullying that goes on that says this is sure. the settled viewpoint. This is, this is uh, settled science. This, you know, we know that macroevolution happened. It, we, you know, maybe we don't know exactly how it all took place, but, but obviously uh, we, we came from lower forms of life, and on back down the line. And that's just accepted as a scientific given mm-hmm. today compared to, you know, 30 years ago or 40. 
Right. I think the same thing is has the the religious world has mirrored that with regard to the Bible and to biblical authority. So there was a debate, but most scholars in evangelicaldom, um, you know, the D.A. Carsons mm-hmm. and the uh, Whites and the you know the other the uh, Trini- the Teds, the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School people, and the um, uh, you know Jets, the Journal of Evangelical Theology. Okay, well they you know they've kind of moved me. They've kind of dismissed it for the same reason that anybody dismissed uh, Dean Bergen's arguments at the time that the Revised Version was first coming out in opposition to the King James. They mm-hmm. dismissed what he would say as theological arguments. Versus a look at the scientific evidence. So okay, so just to recap, because I feel like so much what you say is is jam packed with like historical and and some just nuance. So what you're saying is just like we used to debate evolution, okay, versus creation. We have lost the desire to fight that battle, or we've changed the battleground enough so that. Even in the conversation of, of the preservation of Scripture, even in the conversation with whether or not the King James is the most accurate English text that we have that's been handed down by God, that conversation is ended because, uh, because the authorities or the, those in scholarship have yielded that a, a done deal. We, we're, we're over that. That's not a battleground that we're on anymore. We've moved past that. And that evolutionary perspective of Scripture has taken hold. Is that right? Is Here's that... what has happened. Here's, I'll tell you exactly what has happened. We have capitulated to the conversation of the skeptics. Mm-hmm. We capitulated. Out of fear? Uh, out of uh, lukewarmness. Mm. Um, I mean, there, there are things that make it the Laodicean age. And this is one of them. We capitulated to the skeptics' conversation, to their description of things, to their viewpoint of things, to their assumptions, we capitulated to them and then moved on from there, walking with them, which was not as, not, it did not seem as dangerous as it is because nobody ran forward to the bottom line to see where it was going to take us. Mm-hmm. And so it, you just you seemed like you were an obstructionist if you didn't go along with the general idea that the, these two concepts of a thesis and an antithesis of a believing viewpoint and a skeptical viewpoint collided to produce a higher truth, you need to accept that higher truth. And as, you know, before I left a previous church I was at, somebody took it upon themselves to, um, they would say, integrate or harmonize psychology and the Bible. So biblical counseling and psychology. And, and that, was, that was absolutely their goal. It was not to say, well, you know, one's right and one's wrong. But really there is a middle way here mm-hmm. between a totally secular viewpoint and a totally biblical viewpoint and uh, they don't even refer it today as integrating them. It's it, but it is the it's it's it, it's philosophy. It's Hegel's dialectic applied to life. I mean, and that's where we're at. It started, 
in philosophy. It uh, proceeded, uh, you know, down the line, and that's where we're at today. And so we've got, what we've got is uh, a church who's been impacted by philosophies of the world, uh, by the slow progress towards secularism, uh, by, as we've entered into a post-Christian world, the church looks different, right? It, it looks it looks like, it, well, it's looking more and more like the world. So we've talked about the impact of the world on the church. Now the church is supposed to be having an impact on the world. In what ways is the church failing to do that? Because I think it's maybe the reverse of the way that you might want to describe it. Okay. So because everybody's impacted by the world not just people in the church. Okay. The problem is the pastors, the pastors capitulated to the conversation of the skeptic. Mm. And because we capitulated to this conversation of the skeptic, I would say this, I don't think that the danger has ever been the world affecting the church, okay. you know, and that, that would degrade us. The problem in society has always been the church has ceased to impact the world. And we cease to impact the world when we capitulate to their conversation in description of things and their assumptions and their way of their viewpoint and their way of things. And we capitulate to that. We cease to have the effect on society mm. that Christians must have because it's the only answer for all of the destruction and the darkness and the despair that is going on in our neighborhoods today. Mm. So this conversation so far has been great. And I want to pick this up in the next episode. I want to ask you whether or not there's hope for the church, because it does seem so dark. I mean, this conversation about how, how the church has failed uh, to hold to the truths that it was called to hold to. Is there hope for renewal? Is there hope for revival? That's that's what I want to ask you about in the next episode. So thank sure. you, Pastor Alan Shelby, for joining us. And thank you for joining us in this episode. Join us again next week as we pick up this conversation and talk about whether or not uh, the church has hope for revival and whether or not we can actually truly have an impact on the world in 2019 in post-Christianity. Thanks for joining us. If you've got questions about Living Faith Bible Institute or the Postscript, please visit lfbi.org.